Hello and Happy New Year. A new year and a new series of Stages with Peter Ayers, the podcast that converses with creatives about their career, their process and what matters to them. In 2020, we deliver Series 3 of the podcast with a fantastic lineup of guests, all guaranteed to enthrall with tales from all facets of the entertainment industry. This is a very special episode as it marks our 100th episode. That's right, we've hit the century and I couldn't be more thrilled with today's guest. Helping me celebrate this milestone as we celebrate her is Miss Tony Lamond. I like to sing, but it's better with a band. I like to play the piano, but it's better with a friend. Ask any bass or soprano, from the Met to Dixieland. Singing, maybe swinging, but baby, it's better with a band. Give me a bass, that's a perfect place to start. Drummer with rhythm and you're sure to reach my heart Perhaps a touch of percussion Now we're getting close to art Singing, maybe swinging But baby, it's better with a band So much better with a band The legendary Tony Lamond requires no introduction. She is synonymous with Australian entertainment, having made her mark across all genres, television, film, theatre, cabaret, recording, concert, publications, and of course, musical theatre. Showbiz is in her DNA, all family members having contributed significantly to the arts in Australia and internationally. Lamond was the inaugural guest on stages in 2018, sharing with us a long life of triumph, challenge and dedication. She returns to mark this 100th episode and share some insights into an illustrious career as one of our first bona fide stars. At 87, she is still as passionate about the business as when she took her first steps onto a stage appearing with her parents Stella Lamond and Joe Lawman. She continues to be an avid supporter of young talent and will embrace any opportunity to share her vast talent and wisdom. It is always a great joy sitting down with Tony. She exudes vast optimism and palpable passion. Traits that have been steadfast in a career that has navigated every kind of joy and frustration. She is simply one of the best. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Tony Lamont. Let's have a heart. Very good. Did you? That's that would be something you go through before every performance. I yes. Guess, preparing your um. Yes. Your vocals. I learned to do that. Um. Did you have? You, did you have many singing lessons during your career? It might have been England. It was. Yes, I did, and it was classical. I went to classical, and uh, that that would be why I still have my voice. 
77 years after I first sang professionally at the age of 10. I was told not to go to a pop to a pop school as they were in those those days. And I think I might have been in my early 30s. Um, but I learned to do that that warming up process and how to doesn't it doesn't come from your throat it comes from in your chest which was news to me the teacher told me but she taught people in opera so I wasn't going to argue with her and I thoroughly recommend anybody that they even though they just want to sing hip-hop or pop or whatever that if they want to last have a classical have a classical uh, person teach you because they teach you to get your voice out of your throat and into your chest and up in your head. Well, it's an extraordinary instrument that you have. Oh, it's. Uh, I mean, some a, as a voice... the years go on, I appreciate it more. Yeah, yeah, it stood stood you in good good fast. Um, with eight shows a week. Yes. Never getting fatigue. And I was never off. No. I was never, never off. I was, uh, and my son is the same. <laughs> yeah, very much old school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Your poor understudies. Yes, poor understudies. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are at eighty-seven, and still cutting the mustard. I mean, yeah, it's still there. Yeah, it, absolutely. Full and, blast. And many of us saw it, of course, in that episode of the recording studio. Where that you... was the biggest thrill of my life. Yeah. And um, what they didn't, if you saw the show, what they didn't, what they edited out was that the day before I rehearsed with the pianist and I said, how many in the band? <laughs> and he said, we're not going to tell you, it's a surprise. Oh, oh, okay. So I went away and it was going to be the next day. And the days were long. It used to start here. They sent a a makeup person here at 8 o'clock in the morning and made me up because they filmed me getting in and out of the of the car that was taking me, the poor, oh, there were those shots walking into the poor studio. Poor driver, yeah, the, the poor driver yeah. getting out and getting out my walker and helping me out, and then me walking. They edited all that out, but that was all that happened, and um, it was um, all these interviews all day long. The next day, and I was thinking, oh, it's a, they're not going to tell me. Well, and I hadn't sung with an orchestra for 30 years. And I thought, well, it must be a 12-piece bear. Might even be an 18-piece. Oh, gosh, wow. So on the on the day, the next day, after I rehearsed, 8 o'clock in the morning, and we got there at 9 o'clock, then they started interviewing me and taking me all over the place wasn't until 2.30 in the afternoon that they finally said, now you're going into the studio. 
And I opened that door and I saw for the first time that 36 piece. That's why I broke down and cried. Mm. I was, because the last time I had sung with a classical orchestra was, was, was with the late Tommy Tico at the Opera House 30 years ago. Wow. And uh, it, was a, it was a concert we did. It was thrilling and they were all young people in the orchestra. A lot of them were related to older people who'd played with me. So it was um, a love fest between me and the me and the 16 violins alone I counted. Wow. 16 violins. Wow. It was it was thrilling. Yeah. It was absolutely a huge, thrilling. A huge gift for any vocalist to sing with a, an orchestra oh. of that size. Oh, because when you've only got piano or you're singing a cappella, you've got to give so much more. But with an orchestra, you just relax back into it and let them, you know, play under the thing. It was and Kelly Dickerson... Kelly had been had been in the um, in the pit. I think it was for Forty Second Street. I'd worked with Kelly. It was just, uh, it was. I came home. It took me a week to get over it. I was exhausted. Emotionally, it was the biggest thrill, and then the reaction was just. Astonishing! People came out of the woodwork um, that I hadn't heard from in years and years. You know, there's there's the sort of thing in the back of your mind. Oh well, you know, I'm a has been. Nobody would. Well, darling, as I say, it's better to have been a has been than a never was a. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't really think that, did you? People adore well, you. Well, two and a half. You're one of years. our great stars. Two and a half years. If, if not the great star. When you're star. sitting here and things are going wrong with your body. Yeah. It gets you. I I never, I'm lucky, touch wood, I never get depressed. I'm not, I'm an Aries. Yeah. And they're the, um, we're the. Um, a cockeyed optimist. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a good one. Yes. But you are, I mean, in all the years I've known you. I've never known you to sort of be defeatist. It's always there's there's a sunshine, there's that, light at the end of the tunnel. That's a great help there's to sunshine. be an Aries. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, we don't sit back like my son the Virgo does, um, and the ifs and buts and well, maybe if I did that, but but oh, oh, I might I might fall over if I do that. No, I go in, yeah, without thinking, and that has made me when I look back. At the number of firsts in my career, it's stunning and it's still going on, you know, yeah. thrilling. Yeah. The recording studio, you were revisiting a song which was quite, uh, appeared at quite a, a pivotal time in your life. You were doing the production of Oliver, playing Nancy, and the big number, As Long As He Needs Me, which is... It originally... When the original production of um, Oliver, Sheila Bradley was Nancy. It was the one that came out from overseas. Ours was a revi- was the revival, 
and I got to be the first Australian to play Nancy. We were in, we were in uh, Sydney. We'd played Melbourne, and we lived in Melbourne. And um, he was Tony was four. He um, no, he wasn't. He was ten. He was in the show with me. He was play. He was eleven. That's right. He was eleven. He was born in nineteen fifty five. He was in the show with me playing one of Fagan's boys and one of the orphans. Things were going bad in my marriage. And Frank came to Sydney. We went to Sydney and he came to Sydney for the last week. It was a brilliant success in Melbourne and Sydney. But we had a row on the last night. And I said to him, I'm leaving you. And as he walked out the door, he said, well, I'm taking Tony. And I said, if you do, I'll go to TV Week, TV Times and all the press in Melbourne. Because Frank, by that time, was Graham Kennedy's producer on IMT. He was the top producer in Victoria, Victorian television. That was my last words that I will always regret that I said to I wouldn't have, but you you come out with that. That's the Aries in me. Speak before you think, you know. I was supposed to fly back. We were closing on the Saturday night. I was supposed to fly back on the Sunday and we had a friend, a mutual friend, was coming over for dinner at our place in Wonturner South. Because I'd, I'd said I was leaving Frank, I knew that I had to start looking after my money. And in order to be flown between the states, we had to pay the extra for the airfare because we, the, the, the cast was sent by train. And in the, those days, I don't know whether they still do, but they had. It was the spirit of progress, and and you 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 stopped off, and you changed trains because the yeah all that, and uh, this dates me, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, I wasn't leaving till Sunday night at six o'clock, and getting in, and travelling overnight on Sunday night, and getting in. Monday morning. The police stopped the train at Goulburn and got on to tell my 11-year-old son and I that my husband had taken an overdose of tablets and had died. What had happened, we found out later, because he bought the tablets at our local chemist just down the road from where we lived, he thought I was arriving on mid- midday Sunday and I wasn't arriving till the Monday. He didn't know that. He didn't know that I'd changed. He took the tablets and I was expected to find him, get him to hospital and we'd make up, you know. Yeah. Well, that didn't happen and he wasn't discovered until... 
my girlfriend went out who was going to have dinner with us and she couldn't arouse him and she looked through the window and saw him on the bed and called the police. That was what um, where the drama came in, that then we had the funeral and the night after I was supposed to go on and sing As Long As He Needs Me, which was just... I don't drink before I uh, perform, but that night I had a couple of brandies and my, the stage manager didn't stop me because she knew I wouldn't get through without it. But um, Was there an understudy? Yeah. Did they offer that or because you're so old school and the show must go on? And also I guess it was a way to divert your, your pain a little bit by... Seeing Dr. J.C. Williamson's, the head of J.C. Williamson's, came to see me in Melbourne and said to me, you are going to be on on opening night, aren't you? We don't want to have to put the understudy on on opening night. It's the opening night. of, And if they said opening night once, they said it ten times. Right. So I had no... You were bullied into going I on, really. was more or less, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's terrible. Yeah. 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 So that was when when Gemma came to me. She chose the... Um, because she'd been a fan of mine since she was in school. This is Gemma Murphy who Gemma produced... Murphy, who's with... Um, who's the producer of... Um, the recording studio. Of the recording studio. One of the producers of the recording studio. Yeah. And she chose uh, the number because she'd been a big fan and it was one of her favourites since she was a little girl. And um, Was she aware of that backstory? I don't know. Right. I haven't had a chance to talk to her because she's, she's since had a, had a baby. Fantastic. She and Digby have... Uh, yeah, her, her daddy was, of course, our Spud Murphy, who'd been musical director for Priscilla Queen of the Desert so it's a family oriental thing you know those connections are amazing aren't they it's sort absolutely of the, amazing the various generations that link up well from... and only this week it is it happened again because my Bill Sykes in the show was Terry McDermott and when Tony uh, got into Her Majesty's in Melbourne to um get ready for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, this young stagehand came up to him and said, my grandpa was was Terry McDermott. He was uh, Bill Sykes to your mum in Oliver. And it was like, oh, and the beat goes on. Wow, wow. <laughs> I know I don't want to pry too much, but, you know, when you're singing something like As Long As He Needs Me 50 years later or whatever... Do you still relive that pain of the time that you had to go on? I couldn't afford to because I didn't know whether my voice would still be there, but I have come I've been in I've been in psychiatric care and everything because I had 8 years of punishing myself with guilt yeah. over over Frank's death and um I've learnt to let it go, yeah. as they say in Frozen. <laughs> um, 
and I have made my peace with Frank. As a matter of fact, I talked with Frank on the opening night with his spirit on the opening night of Tony last last Thursday night. Who just opened at Charlie and the Chocolate Charlie Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory at Her and- Majesty's in Melbourne, yes. And um, I sang, I told Tony I wanted to be with him in spirit because I couldn't get there to to see him in the opening. And um, I, I sang Hey There, which was my first, my introduction into musical comedy at Her Majesty's in Melbourne. I sang Hey There and Steam Heat, which Frank, Frank was with Tiki Taylor and Kevin Johnson. He was, they did, they were the first people in Australia to do Bob Fosse choreography. Steam Heat, yeah. Gorgeous. So I spoke with Frank and I sort of wanted us both to be there in spirit. As long as he needs me. Oh yes, he does need me. In spite of what you see, I'm sure that he needs me. Could love him still when they've been used so ill. He knows I always will as long as he needs me. I miss him so much when he is gone, but when he's near me, I don't let on. The way I feel inside The love I have to hide The hell I've got my pride As long as he needs me He doesn't say the things he should He acts the way He thinks he should But all the same I'll play This game His way The Madge, of course, the home of many of your great successes on the stage. I'm so lucky to have played there so many times. And today in this conversation, I wanted to talk to you a bit about some of your big roles. Yeah. And and the circumstances around them and and any anecdotes which might come to mind. But so let's go right back to the pajama game where you you led the company in probably the first fully Australian cast production. Well... I I didn't lead the car. I was the leading lady. Bill Newman was the leading man. Well, you co-led, really. Uh, Yes. And uh, it didn't hurt that I was was on television a lot. And that sort of built up my... um, A following. Popularity, yes. Bums on seats are important. Yes. A week before we opened in Pajama Game, Frank and I did the opening night of GTV9 because television didn't come to Australia until 1956. It was, it was everywhere else in the world. I remember Frank and I were in 
the Philippines and uh, we, with our with our song and dance act, we watched television in the Philippines. Uh, For the first time. This was 50, 1954, yes. And uh, why haven't we got it in Australia? It was being argued in Parliament, the pros and cons of it. And then Australia got, uh, Melbourne got the Olympic Games and they realised that they had to have television for the rest of the world. They had to film the rest of the world. And a lot of the studios hadn't been built. The ABC had their had their television studios um, and Channel 7 had their television studios. And in Sydney, they had T- TCN 9, but they didn't have one in Melbourne. They bought a piano factory, but it had it wasn't it wasn't converted in time. They used to go out. They were they were uh, outside broadcasts, of course. They were at the Olympic Games all day, um, and then they would go back to where the transmitters were, where there'd be a little room, which was a studio, and somebody would do the the news and the weather, and maybe show a. a an episode of Hopalong Cassidy or something, and then the station would close down for the night. You'd have the test pattern, wouldn't you? That's right. <laughs> and we were booked to be on the opening night of GTV9, the old piano factory in, in Bendigo Street, Richmond. Now, it, it so happened there was a drama with that night too. We were in Melbourne uh, appearing at the um, Savoy Plaza Hotel, which was opposite Spencer Street Station. We were doing the floor show. You did one floor show early at dinner and then you did one late at night. And we were booked to be... uh, They had the um, Governor of Victoria, Sir Dallas Brooks was driving in the back of the studio in his Rolls Royce and he got out, out and officially declared GTV9 open and then Terry Deer, who was the compere, said, and now, ladies, on with the show because it was a full-scale variety show and Frank and I were the opening act. The curtains opened and we went into our number, I Won't Dance. Anyway, we were doing, we were, we rehearsed at, um, at, we thought it was starting at 8.30 and we knew that we had a chance to get out from the Savoy Plaza, our, our dinner time show and be the opening act. So, um, we finished rehearsing and Norm Spencer, the, the director said, all right, everybody, okay. Go for a break now. Um, now everybody, be, be back uh, by um, by uh, seven thirty, quarter to eight for an eight o'clock start. And we said, wait a minute. What, what do you mean an eight o'clock start? Doesn't it start at eight thirty? No, it starts at eight o'clock. Oh, so all the way back in, we're driving through Bridge Road, Richmond. We're in the car and I'm putting on my makeup for the floor show. 
well, well, we'll cut this and we'll cut that and we, we won't do because we won't get back in time. And when we pulled up at, at the Savoy Plaza, we walked in and the guy that booked us into the Savoy Plaza is standing there with his arms crossed and he said, if you cut anything tonight, you're fired. Oh, no. Well, we couldn't afford to be fired. <laughs> so everything, all, all, all tempos were... Double time, triple time. Yeah. yeah. Hopped into the car in our costumes and makeup, raced out through... We, luckily, we got all the green lights all the way through Bridge Road because it was we had to go out through Richmond. And we pulled up and... Um, the head of GTV9 is jumping up and down on the pavement. Come on, come on, you're nearly on. It was about five to eight. Frank said, I've got to park the car and turn the head. And he said, no, leave it. So Frank got out with the engine running and the headlights on. We raced into the studio. So Dallas was just finishing up. And I know officially declare GTV9 open. And everybody went, oh! And Terry D said, okay, on with the show. And here they are, Tony LeBond and Frank Sheldon. And the curtains opened and we went into I Won't Dance. It wasn't until 50 years later I discovered that made me, here we are, Aries again, the first woman on Victorian television because men did the news and weather all all the time, you know, and there were no women, and and this was the first variety show we had, which later became, uh, a couple of weeks later became IMT in Melbourne Tonight. For quite a few years now, I've been a minstrel girl, singing for my supper in the throng. Time my world has been a minstrel world, and the history of my life is in my songs. Gay songs, sad songs, good songs, bad songs, new songs, old songs, shy songs, and bold songs, dusk songs, dawn songs, show must go on songs, ever so smart songs, and oh, my broken heart songs. I've sung so many songs, I don't know what to do, except to sing a few of them for you. You'll miss my hugging. You'll 
I was the first woman on Victorian television. Congratulations. <laughs> and then your many TV appearances, I guess, are garnering a, a loyal following who support you in the pyjama game. Well, that was, that was, it was, it was a thrill. And having been a variety performer, which was sort of the lowest form of theatrical life, in musical comedy, during World War II, after the, the Japanese bombed Darwin and, and shelled Elizabeth Bay, um, they weren't sending out any new shows on the ships, and they were not on the planes because um, they were in in battle. Um, so they started um, redoing Gilbert and Sullivan and and, and Grand Opera. So Gladys Moncrief and 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 the 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 comics from pre World War Max Oldacre. Max Oldacre, there you go. 1945 came, and after what, no new Australian stars were made, and when they sent out shows like Oklahoma and Annie Get Your Gun and Think Carousel, there were no new Australian, and of course it cost more to go and see a musical than to go to the TIV. Um, so... Um, they started importing leads. Hayes Gordon. Did Hayes Gordon come out for Oklahoma? Yes, he did, and yeah. stayed out here. Yeah, and yeah. stayed out here, yes. Which was which was fine, except when they began not to bring out... They'd bring out the third understudy from the fourth stock company yep. of the... But as long as they had an American accent or a British accent, you know... When they bought two new shows, J.C. Williamson's, they bought two new shows in a package, The Pajama Game, about a pajama factory, which was a smallish show compared to Carousel and Oklahoma, big, huge productions. Um, and Damn Yankees was the, was the other one. In the meantime, Dame Margot Fontaine, the famous ballet star, ballerina, was due to come out and play three theatre royals in a one-woman show, telling the story of her life and da-da-da. Theatre Royal Melbourne, Theatre Royal Sydney, Theatre Royal Adelaide, a month each, and she cancelled, which made the three theatres dark. Now... That seems all right. Oh, yeah, well, I shut the doors. Uh-uh. That's like standing over a drain and tearing up 100-pound notes because they still had to pay the box office staff and the front of house staff. And it is alleged... Our favourite word. It is alleged <laughs> that in a meeting at J.C. Williamson's when they were discussing the pyjama game... If we put that into a month each, if we put that with an Australian, an all Australian cast, a month each at the Theatre Royals, we couldn't lose too much money, could we? We couldn't not make too much money, lose. No, what a good idea. 
And that's how the first cast of the pyjama game was put together. They decided not to spend any more money on bringing out somebody, but cast it with locals. The public discovered us. Two and a half years we ran from what was supposed to be three months. It was thrilling. It really was. And that and we thought that it would that the very next show they imported leads again. And it wasn't until six years later Jill Perryman doing um, a Funny Girl and a year later Nancy Hayes in um, Sweet Charity. And uh, they they started uh, to not bring out, yeah. So did you have to audition for Pajama Game or were you offered the yes. role of Babe? Yes, we had to. Fred Hebert, which God love him, it worked because later, years later when I went to America... Fred Hebert, um, he got me into understudying um, uh, Yvonne De Carlo in Hello Dolly. Yeah, I'd never understudied in my life, but he figured it would be a good idea. And she had to go off um, a few times. This was Los Angeles um, because uh, she was... um, shooting uh, a new thing called The Munsters, where she played Lily Munster. (laughs) (laughs) But Fred helped uh, get me into the uh, theatrical thing. Yes, so yes, we had to audition. Was that a bit of an assault to your ego, that suddenly you were understudy, having played the lead so many times in Australia? Well, I thought about it, and then I figured, well, I could go around being famous in my own mind and not work, that I needed to get out on stage and show my wares. So I did it. And um, as I say, I only got on three times in the 18 months. But... um, it uh, later on I got to play Dolly on on my own behalf in a in a stock company in in California somewhere I can't remember where it was yeah yeah but I I never had to understudy again that was the only time that I ever did it because I began to be known and Gordon Hunt God love him who's Helen Hunt's father oh yes yes. And he helped me get into uh, into the business over there. So it paid off having to audition. And, uh, you know, I was in... It wasn't like Variety where, where they book your act and, and they book you because you're known from somewhere else. Uh, but this was American directors who didn't know anybody in Australia. So, so it was important to be seen. It and... was important to be seen, yeah. Well, I remember, I remember when, I, when we, we auditioned, I auditioned, and Frank was uh, there, and he said that he was willing to understudy. Um, he'd been in the back row of the chorus um, right up to then, and he was, um, he said to them he was willing to understudy 
one of the characters in the pajama game and uh, the director said to him but you're a dancer aren't you and he said yeah and he said well we've, we've got this number the steam heat number and of course <laughs> the brilliant show-stopping steam heat number uh, was uh, the first Bob Fosse um, numbers shown in Australia and Frank got to do that but he was offering so that I would get the lead he was willing to because he'd be and he was that was his problem all through his life he was uh, oh I'm not good enough she's the star and I'm the chorus boy you know that was that was the root of a lot of our problems but luck of luckily then it turned out you know to be stunning well, Fred Hebert must have had quite an eye for talent because in that company, there was Tony Lamond, Jill Perryman. Tiki Taylor. Tiki Taylor, Kevin yeah. Johnson. Yeah. Um, they had somebody else playing that um, that uh, role that uh, Jill Perryman played. Mabel. Mabel. And because uh, Jill was 19 and somebody else would play and she wasn't cutting it. And then... Um, the he went to JCW and they said, "Oh, we we haven't got there aren't too many um, middle-aged uh, actresses um, who can sing," and uh, it was Fred that said, "Well, what, this this girl, but but she's only nineteen. She Jill was the understudy of Mabel." And uh, they said, she's only 19. And, and the director said, I'm a director. I'll direct her to be. And she, of course, was brilliant in the, and it brought her to the fore. But as I say, it was six years until she got in her own right. And who played Heinze? That was Keith. Keith Peterson. Who was an who, old vaudeville star, wasn't he? Who was, he'd been in, he'd worked with Max and Stella. He'd worked with my parents, yeah. Did you have a favourite moment or song in the show? Oh, Hey There. Yeah, beautiful. Of course, song. yeah. Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes, love never made a fool of you you used to be too wise hey there you on that high flying cloud though you've been acting cold to him you know your heart is sold The ball girl, just take it all in your stride. Don't let him make you fall apart. You've always had your pride. Won't you take this advice? I hand you like a brother. Or Are you too much in love to hear? Is it all going in one ear and out the other? 
But I, I loved every minute of the show. It's a great show. I don't know why it hasn't oh, been revived. But, um, and of course, Doris Day made the movie of it and made it world famous. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. Love never made a fool of you. You used to be. Too wise. Won't you take this advice I hand you like a mother? Or are you not seeing things too clear? Are you just too far gone to hear? Is it all going in one ear and out the other? Thank Bravo. <laughs> Oh, what a treat! That's that's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. yeah. It was it was. I loved every minute of it, and we played. You know, we, we used to go over to Perth and everything. You know, Big Sydney, tour. Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth. Didn't Come get to Tassie. <laughs> Poor old Tassie. Poor old Tassie. Uh, they had out. to come to the mainland. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about Wildcat. Oh yeah, Wildcat. Um, that was with um, Lucille Ball had a big hit. That was she? yes. Yeah. That was at the Princess Theatre. Was that Garnet Carroll then? Garnet Carroll. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a big hit, unfortunately. No, it wasn't, so why was well? It wasn't a big hit on Broadway. I don't think either. So no, it's curious I, that they. I don't know. Bring it out it here. was it was fun to do, but it just had it had the kiss of death on it. You know, some shows they don't take off with the. Uh, with the audience, it they relied too much on Lucille Ball's uh, skewed humour, so that it didn't it didn't touch the audience's heart. You know, you've got to touch the audience's heart with a show. What was it about? Finding Wildcat was was oil finding oil, and the, and a Wildcat. Um, uh, oil thing is one that that's unexpected where they haven't dug for it and it just suddenly spurts out she used to go out on or an entertain at oil things or something or other and she was called she was nicknamed wildcat but the big number for that was um hey look me over wasn't it hey look me over send ben me oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah now, did you have an agent in those days who was representing you, or we, did you have to represent yourself? No, I don't think so. I think we were notified direct. Forty yeah. Second Street was the other show that you did. Forty Second well, Street, well, all around Australia, but at yeah at the match. But you'd done it in America as well. I did it in America. Yes, it was a, a fun show, and Nancy was in that, of course. Uh, when I came back, Nancy and um, uh, Todd McKenney. That was Todd's first show. Right. Yeah. And Leonie Page. And Leonie Page. There you go. Yeah. But didn't Carol Cook get to see, because she originated the role on Broadway. Right. Didn't she get to see you in America, play the role of, of Maggie Jones? Yes. And she, can't, she did Dolly out here. 
Carol Cook. That's right. And Jill understudied her, didn't she? That's right. <laughs> Some people can get a thrill Knitting sweaters and sitting still That's okay for some people Who don't know they're alive But I at least gotta try When I think of all the sights That I gotta see And all the places I gotta play All the things that I gotta be at Come up, Papa, what do you say? What do you say? Some people can be content Playing bingo and paying rent That's perfect for some people For some humdrum people to be Well, some people are dumb people And some people ain't me Gypsy Hey, what a role That's, that's described as the King Lear of musical theatre Gypsy, Gloria Dawn was playing Gypsy and uh, we'd, you know, it was the, uh, it was the huge thing on Broadway with Ethel Merman as Mama Rose and Gloria Dawn, uh, her daughter now is Donna Lee, um, she, she was in the show as a little girl. Gloria opened in it in Melbourne and I was in Sydney in hospital I'd had a minor surgery I can't remember what it was for and at that by that time I did have an agent and she was my stepmother the woman who (laughs) my mum and dad let me just digress for a moment my mum and dad, my mother Stella Lamond, was a vaudeville star at the Tivoli. She did a show called the she, her act was called The Girl from Whoop Whoop, and she played the ukulele and did funny characters and stuff. And she married a comedian, Joe Lawman, who was my father. And Joe Lawman was a big, uh, overweight. Corpulent. Corpulent comedian who wore a baggy suit. They used to dress up in funny clothes because they had to be funny when they walked on. The audience had to, to get it that, that, oh, that's the comic, you know. <coughs> and he used to, if you would just reach up where that candle is, white candle, yeah. reach up behind it, yeah. and there's a, there's a metal thing. No, no, in the front, yeah. No, in the front, in the front, up behind the white candle. White candle, yes. Bell. That's it. A safety pin. That was the safety pin my father wore through the fly of his trousers. What is it, a yard wide? Yeah. A yard wide. And he used to whistle through his teeth. I can't do it, but it da 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 and he'd put his hands in his pocket yeah, put his hands in his pockets and he'd work the pin back and forth. <laughs> Hysterical, very funny, termed out hat in the front, you know. And but he and my mother didn't ever have a double act. And they worked separately. They were in vaudeville, it was during the depression. 
was in the 30s. I was born in 1932. And I lived in Sydney uh, in 75 Ninth Avenue with a nanny. Stella and Joe had to work, take work where, and you had to go where the work was. New Zealand, you know, Brisbane, wherever, Tasmania. And Joe fell in love with the <clears throat> third gorgeous chorus girl from the left, and they got divorced. But Joy, who he married, the third gorgeous chorus girl from the left, outlived them after Joe and Stella died, and Stella remarried Max Reddy and had a little girl, little half-sister. I don't know what's happened to her. Anyway, Helen Reddy, she might have gone into show business, I don't know. I'm just breezing along with the breeze, trailing the rails, roaming the seas. Like the birdies that sing in the trees, pleasing to live and living to please. The sky is the only roof I have over my head And when I'm weary, Mother Nature makes me a bed I'm just going along as I please Breezing along with the breeze uh, Anyway, Joy became my agent later in life and she started to get me gigs and she negotiated my contract with when they called I was in hospital as I say in Sydney and Gloria got ill she'd opened in the show as Mama Rose and had to go into hospital and she was only supposed to be going in for a couple of weeks and they called Joy because they knew by then that, that she was my agent, my manager, and asked if I could take over for uh, from Mama Rose. She called me in hospital and I said, tell them yes. And I got on the train. There's that famous train again. I put my car on the train. I was supposed to take over at the end of the week I got on the train on Sunday put my car on the train and I learned the script on the train going to Melbourne I went to see the show Monday night because we used to have Sundays off in those days and you did we did Monday night and the understudy was on and I said, Betty Pounder was the director at that time. I said, I had better be on before next Saturday. This show won't be open. It had, The understudy did everything at that slow pace. And Mama Rose, you know, she... It's a hurricane. It was a hurricane. Mm. This was a gentle breeze the understudy, and Pounder said, when do you think you can you can get in by? I said, Wednesday. 
And this was Tuesday morning, I told her. So I started rehearsing with the company on Tuesday. We did the first act on Tuesday. And on Wednesday morning before the matinee, we did the, we did the second act, rehearsed the second act. Wednesday night, I went on. So within five days, I took over from Gloria. And what we didn't know was Gloria was terminally ill. Mm. And she died, and I took it took it over from then. So it was one of those things of chance. Yeah. Yeah. So you headed off to the USA to try your luck. Was that a daunting experience? Oh, was it ever? Well, first of all, Frank and I had gone to England in 1960 um, because um, the West End was where we we thought we'd like to do and then Frank died in 1966 uh, and I went over in 1968 and played Soho I played in uh, oh did I I didn't tell you that story did I oh please do I was um, Edmundo Ross was um, ROS was a well known band leader uh, in, in, in the 60s and he owned a club in Soho and Soho is the the mecca of nightlife in London I did my single act and um, there was a lineup of girls comic a juggler the whole shebang you know and they had hostesses sitting at the tables gorgeous looking girls uh, where, where single men came in, the hostess would come up and say, would you like some champagne, darling? And then maybe, maybe they'd go home with them. Anyway, there was, the bossa nova, bossa nova was just coming in. So I had a bossa nova song in my act. And there was down at the front table, because they were tables in a nightclub, and there was this guy, and there were three girls at his table. Oh, okay. So on opening night, I did my act and the bossa nova number. Uh, the producer of the show said, we've gone over time. Uh, you're going to have to cut something. So I cut the bossa nova, which was the latest one because I was doing special material, jokes and things. And the bossa nova was the last one I did and I came on and the guy was down there again. I started to announce my last day. He said, what about the bossa nova then? No, I'm not doing the bossa nova tonight. <laughs> Next night, same thing. What about the bossa nova then? No, I'm not doing the bossa nova. By the third night, when he said it, I said, no, I'm not doing the bossa nova Tonight, tomorrow, or any other night. Okay? Okay. Went on with the act. As we're going off in the finale, ballet girl behind me says, Oh, see Reggie Cray's in again. Oh. One of the Cray <laughs> twins. There the you next go. night... And you live to tell the tale. The next night... You guess what? This is especially for you. 
and I sang the entire possum over number to him. Oh, Ooh. my God. They used to nail people's yes. feet to the floor. You got out of that nicely. I sure did. <laughs> he was he was crazy about mm. um, his brother Ronnie was in jail at the time. Right. But Reggie, I think Reggie owned a club later on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What about a boss and over then? Yeah. <laughs> I can't give you anything but love, baby. Cause that's the only thing I've plenty of, baby. Dream a while, scheme a while, you're sure to find happiness. And I guess all those things you've always pined for. Gee, I'd like to see you looking swell, baby. With those diamond cufflinks, Woolworths doesn't sell, baby. Till that lucky day, you know darn well, baby. I can't give you anything but love I can't give you anything but love Baby, cause that's the only thing I've got plenty question of, 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 of America um, I decided by this time I was 50 and getting on a bit to be going to America and for the first time and uh, because one always thought you know you had to be in your 20s to go into new stuff but it couldn't have ha- happened at a better time because I got into stock company Summer Stock is, for those who don't know it, is is the theatres that play in out of main towns, in in country towns and, and other towns throughout America, throughout the summer. And they have a stock company that is a company of the same people uh, who won week you can be playing five lines the next week you can be the second lead and they brought out the the stars from television or broadway i got into because i I knew gordon hunt and uh, fred hebert as i say they helped me into it and it got around that i was um experienced in doing these roles and that way I got to work in St. Louis, Missouri, Fort Worth, Texas, San Francisco with Annie. 
Oh, there was a little, uh, I, I had a little posse in, in Annie. I used to take them out on the day off to a movie or something or whatever. There was an 11, 11 year old little girl, Molly Ringwald. Wow. <laughs> you never know. You never know. That's what I say, be nice on the way up. <laughs> anyway, I got to see a large part of America through being in summer stock. And uh, then I, uh, I didn't go to New York because, as I say, by this time I was in my early 50s and a lot of the uh, living arrangements in New York, they didn't have a lift and, you know, I couldn't see myself climbing five flights of stairs. And by that time I needed temperate weather, Mm. yes, like Sydney uh, and Los Angeles gave me that and that's how I got into television and got in Starsky and Hutch was my first first show I got a a, a scene with Starsky and Hutch Murder She Wrote Murder She Wrote Eight is Enough um did you do a love boat I did a love boat but I can't remember what I did in it and um I all these years later 30-odd to 40 years later, they pay, what's the name? Residuals. Royalties, Mm. residuals. So I always know when a new cable channel has opened. I can tell you now that uh, Murder, She Wrote is playing in Spain, in Germany and in Austria. I know from my residuals. I never did meet Angela Lansbury. The day I pulled up for my for my part, I was pulling up in one one gate in in where we were shooting the thing, and she was getting into her chauffeured car to leave. So it was, uh, you know, from a distance, I sort of waved to Angela. <laughs> That was a disappointment because I was a great fan of hers. But I was very happy in Los Angeles. Did you enjoy the touring? Or just did you do you enjoy touring generally when you were with the show? Well, I did. Yeah. I did when, when, I, when I, before I started losing use of my body because this is, an, this is old dancers and old athletes' body. This is the uh, fractures and, the, uh, and all that stuff. And what I didn't, which I wish I'd known back then in the 40s and 50s when I first went in, I wish I'd known about the proper foods to eat to build up. Replenish the body. Yeah, replenish. We didn't know. Sometimes I was so broke, I was out of work for so long, all I could afford to have for dinner for a week was a packet of Smith's crisps. Oh, really? So. That my bones got weak and fractured and things, and that you know, two knee replacements, a shoulder replacement, and I've got some more metal in my spine. I've got so much metal in me, I'm thinking of offering myself to Bunnings Warehouse as a television spokeswoman. <laughs> I get all my metal from Dun- Bunnings Warehouse, and I haven't got a screw loose. <laughs> <laughs> 
did you have um, an opening night ritual? Something you went through before you began a show? I started to, um, when I, I'd been a Presbyterian uh, ever since I was a little girl. I was born into a Presbyterian family. But I discovered when I visited my sister, Helen, in the States, she was into spiritualism. And I took, I took that on. I found that because I didn't like... Uh, Presbyterianism was too, too tight-lipped and tight-bummed for me, you know. It made sense to me and I could communicate with the, the universe, you know. And I began to speak to my, you know, I learned that there were angels, there were the money angels. When you broke, you ask your money angels to help you with uh, making some more money or, or, or not to waste your money. And I got to know my, my guardian angels. Uh, and I learnt that the guardian angels aren't are there to protect you, but they're not allowed to jump in unless you ask them. When you ask them and they jump in and help you, always remember to thank them at the end. And I got to know my guardian angels. I'd, I'd talk to them on opening night because as I got older and found I was lucky to get a job, I wanted to communicate with my angels and um, my my guardian angels I call them my A-team <laughs> well you Tony Lamont you have been a cherished friend for many years now and I yeah. was thrilled when you came on board as the very first guest in episode one of Stages to uh, I was thrilled to, to be asked darling well and now we're celebrating episode 100 so Whoa. thank you Whoa. so much for um, giving your time today and, and having this conversation and, and being here for number 100 I couldn't have, couldn't think of anyone else I would rather celebrate it with so thank you darling thank you, thank you. and thanks for sharing uh, and, and for that snatch of hey you um, <laughs> earlier on that was that was very special <laughs> Tony Lamond kicks off this season of stages and following is an exciting lineup of showbiz luminaries who have figured prominently in the formative years of musical theater in Australia join me over the next weeks as we celebrate Betty Pounder Jill Perryman Kevin Johnston and Nancy Hayes they were there when it all began, and I am thrilled to be celebrating their glorious careers on stages. A special thank you to Digby Mitchell for permission to use the track of Miss Lamont performing As Long As He Needs Me. You may obtain your own copy of the track from the Recording Studio album available from iTunes. You're not going to want to miss this episode, so do make sure you have subscribed to Stages so that you can receive all of the others as well as they drop. I'm Peter Eyes. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time on Stages.